Okay. Recording has started, so I guess we'll start the lecture. Skin and soft tissue infections. Um, this is a Christmas gift for me from Dr. Takis. He gave it a few years ago, so I used a lot of his stuff. Um, but I updated it since now we're using Harwood and Ness. Um, it start out going from worse to slightly less worse. Or some, yeah, it's, we're going to start at, at the absolute worst. So um, this is actually gas gangrene, and we'll talk about that. Um, they're kind of, it's, they're all like a little gray area. It's hard to figure out in the ER which is which. So we'll talk about deep cutaneous infections first. Um, so we'll go start with the infections that involve like the muscle, like really deep, and then go up. Um, usually a lot of these infections are seen with people with obvious trauma, post-surgery, um, foreign bodies stuck in them, um, soil contamination, because a lot of the organisms that cause this live in the soil, the anaerobes, clostridia, um, people with diabetes, ischemia, peripheral vascular disease, obviously makes it uh, a good area for uh, an anaerobic infection to um, start. So to start at the bottom, uh, talk about gas, gangrene. Um, like I said, uh, clostridial infections are really, really prominent, but they also can be polymicrobial, uh, depending on the situation, like what foreign body was embedded in them or what surgery they had, that kind of thing. Uh, mostly there's a spore-forming species, so they can live out in the environment um, uh, pretty heartily. Um, like I said, they're involved, uh, they live in the soil, they can find them in the GI tract, and then particularly the uh, women's GU tract. Um, like I said, they're involved in a lot of trauma, post-surgical infections. So basically, sometimes these people have a history of bad wound care, um, like not taking care of it after you like sew up a laceration or after they go home from their orthopedic procedure. It's not too common, gas gangrene, but it's probably common enough that we'll see it at some point um, or at least suspect it a few times um, during um, our work. So, like I said, it's the deepest, most severe infection. goes all the way down to the muscle, past the fascia, to the muscle. There's gas production that you can see on that x-ray. Um, but they don't necessarily have to have gas production. Um, it's kind of a later finding. Um, and especially with clostridial infection, um, there's an alpha toxin that's produced. So these people are sick. They're septic, um, hopefully. Um, which kind of clues you into what could be going on. But um, this alpha toxin also produces like a cardiodepressant so they can get even more hypotensive, kind of a CHF kind of picture. Um, and it inactivates leukocytes, so your immune function goes down the toilet. Uh, a lot of hemolysis and necrosis goes on, so there's spillage of potassium, myoglobin. This can lead to, you know, problems with having high potassium, the arrhythmias and things like that, as well as rhabdomyolysis, kidney failure, liver failure, the whole bit. So very, very sick. And they look sick, hopefully. Um, you know, there's a three-day incubation period, but that can be widely varied, seven hours, six weeks, depending on who you read. Um, and then when they, once they get to you, they can definitely deteriorate within hours, so basically within an ER visit. 
Um, a characteristic thing with this, uh, especially in post-surgical patients, would be pain out of proportion. Um, besides, you know, thinking about, um, uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry, it's, it's early and my mind's blanking. Post-surgical patient, especially an ortho patient with a fracture, what else are you thinking of? What else is on your differential? Compartment syndrome, so pain out of proportion with that, but also pain out of proportion with this. They might, <laughs> so um, they might complain that the, the affected part also feels heavy, maybe. Um, they'll, at the beginning, there'll be some brawny edema, some yellow discoloration. Um, with gas, you might feel the crepitus. There's something that we always try to look for when, even when we're looking at cellulitis, um, and definitely something to, to document whether it has crepitus or not. Um, later, it can develop into some bulla, like we saw in the picture, and then some serosanguinous discharge, like if you stick a needle in it um, or do cut into it to figure out, you know, if it's bleeding or not. And then a really foul, mousy odor is described as well. Obviously, if they're sick, they're going to have really crappy vitals and crappy labs, like, you know, uh, anemia, high potassium, high myoglobin, um, liver failure, kidney failure, all of that. Um, obviously, they're probably going to be altered because um, if they're in sepsis, then they're not going to be, um, their cognition's going to be off. Um, like in the picture x-ray, you can uh, ask for gas, ask to see if there's gas in between in the tissues. Um, let radiology, especially if you're outside of here, let radiology that's, know that's kind of what you're looking for because as those of us who've moonlighted, um, who order x-rays at these other little places, they don't look for really anything at all <laughs> um, at the radiology. So it's really up to you to tell them, yes, I am curious about gas within the tissues and not just a little fracture. Um, and then it, uh, Harwood and Nuss uh, said that it can advance up to 10 centimeters an hour. This is the only uh, place where I found that you can, that actually said this is how much it advances in this amount of time frame. So, um, but the thing with these deep, deep infections, like the other slide said that, um, you know, the deeper is more deceptive. When it's really starting out deep, especially post-surgical, like if somebody's cut into there um, or they've been opened up or they have a foreign body in there, um, it starts out deep. So what you see on the surface could actually look pretty normal or look really, really, um, you know, just like a simple cellulitis or something like that. It's just all of everything else, the big picture taken in, the bad vitals, the bad labs, the fact that they're febrile, um, the pain out of proportion, the heaviness feeling is kind of what leads you to believe that this might be a deeper infection rather than something superficial or just a crybaby patient. Um, so basically a regular sepsis treatment um, although you want to really push the fluids and blood products instead um, of jumping to pressors because this will obviously increase the ischemia and the ischemia is what's driving the infection anyway. Um, want to start out with Penji and Clinda. We know Byrne likes it here. Um, it's one of two of Latenser's top uh, uh, antibiotics. But keep in mind that since there's a lot of hemolysis going on, their K could be up, so you can switch that penicillin G into sodium instead of potassium. And that's easy to do here. Um, but other drugs that you can give uh, based on the clinical situation are just some uh, cephalosporins, macrolides, vanco, um, if they have a history of MRSA or this is a recurrent infection from MRSA.
Um, obviously, tetanus status needs to be updated, and then a call to surgery, definitely. I mean, even, you know, once you suspect it, even before you get labs back and x-rays and stuff like that, probably start giving them a call. I know here they really appreciate that. And then um, hyperbaric oxygen is something that um, has helped people like this, and um, some sources say that it's good to do before surgery. It can further delineate the line um, of where the infection is and where it stops, um, and especially if the patient can't get to surgery um, that quickly. So this is kind of subtle, but... What's a, what's, a, what's a step better than gas gangrene? Catherine said it. Neck fash. And as you can see here, I mean, these pictures really, the patient presentation really overlaps. So as you can see here, this is pretty subtle. Um, you know, it might be a little edematous. It's red discolored. But, you know, if you didn't feel any crepitus, you know, you, you wonder, you know, is this just something superficial or is it something deeper? It obviously looks bad but um, just how bad. So neck fascia involves the subcutaneous tissue and fascia, and depending on where you read, uh, it either does not cross the fascia or it does cross the fascia. So I think it depends on what bug is actually in there. Most of these are polymicrobial. Um, only a few of them are actually the alpha strep. So, um, you know, we always think of flesh-eating bacteria as the strep, but that's actually a minority of these infections. Um, most of them are probably microbial, and there's a symbiotic relationship between aerobes and anaerobes. Um, a lot of the uh, aerobic bacteria that get in cause vasculitis and thrombosis from their bacterial toxins, so that promotes tissue ischemia, which promotes the anaerobic infection. So that's how it spreads um, pretty rapidly. You can see these uh, or think about them like when you see a perirectal abscess, perianal abscess, obviously in IV drug users, people who are injecting, you know, cocaine, um, that's a promotes tissue ischemia just from its um, uh, clamping down on the ve blood vessels. Um, cutaneous ulcers can lead to this. Obviously, head and neck infections are big, too. Um, I was looking for pictures of neck fash, and I think 50% of them were like, post-surgical on the face or the neck. So um, obviously pain out of proportion, the same kind of symptoms as gas gangrene. Um, they progress within hours, but absolutely how far does the line go and how many hours never could find some literature source to tell us that. Because obviously when you see cellulitis in the department, the first thing I do is put a line around it and time it. But, you know, I never really see it go beyond the line because I'm starting antibiotics anyway. But nobody's really said, you know, how fast to expect it to go. Um, with neck fascia, obviously, erythema, edema, vesicles, blebs. Um, you can sometimes feel crepitus. Um, it's, it can be a late finding. So don't rely on the fact that you don't feel crepitus to distinguish neck fascia from non-neck fascia. Um, basically, diagnosis is the same. They might be a little bit less sick appearing. They might not have the altered mental status or all the really bad vitals. They might not be aseptic, let's just say that. Um, Tentinelli's advocated doing rabid frozen sections to look for this. Um, I've never done it, never heard about anybody doing that. They also advocated the finger test, 
which you, if you have in the suspicious area, you uh, put in a local, put a two centimeter incision down to about the fascia plane. If you see any bleeding, that's a good sign. If you don't see bleeding, that's a bad sign. Um, if you see gray fluid coming out instead, that's a bad sign. Um, and then if you're still unsure, you can stick your finger in there. And if it goes easily along the fascial plane, that's a bad sign. So never done it myself, but <laughs> didn't see it done and burned, definitely. Um, but treatment's the same. Resuscitation, uh, try to hold off on the pressors for the same reason um, as gas gangrene. Antibiotics are pretty much the same from the get-go. Surgery, HPO, that's what you need to do. Um, something a little less bad would be the necrotizing cellulitis. It's kind of like the uh, what comes before neck fash. It's like between the cellulitis abscess to, and the neck fash. Um, it's a little bit more superficial, hasn't gone down to the fascial plane yet. Um, it's not as faint, uh, as pa painful, and people really aren't as sick as you would expect. Um, they may have a slower progression, um, and you may see more of a necrotic center or a gray-brown discoloration other than the brawny edema and uh, reddish discoloration. Um, as I said before, less systemic symptoms. They're more or less less sick, but they're still a little bit sick. Um, and basically, the thing for all of these deep cutaneous infections is that if you think it's neck fash or heading to neck fash, at least here, getting surgery on the phone, let Latensor or Wibbenmeyer, um, or the burn physicians, I should say, um, decide what, how much they want to cut out or if they want to cut at all. So, uh, all right, moving on. This is, this is a cat bite from one of Dave's Gucci kitties. So what do all of these kind of encompass? Since we're going from the bottom muscle layer up to the top. They're all forms of cellulitis. So um, the one on the right is kind of, it's, you know, a basic cellulitis um, from a cat bite. Um, you would also be concerned about whether it's infecting that joint, obviously, how deep it went down. The nose is just, you know, from a pimple in the nose that just went haywire, um, and then uh, Lyme um, target lesion is a form of cellulitis too. So there's all there's a lot of different types of cellulitis, um, but basically, what all cellulitis is a local inflammatory reaction. Most of the redness and the edema that you see is from the inflammatory reaction. Um, your typical patient's going to be a middle-aged guy otherwise healthy, has maybe a tender, indurated area on the arm or leg that does not have a clear margin. Um, it's usually a little bit light pink, and usually they're pretty healthy appearing. Their vitals are normal. They probably don't have a temp or a white count or anything like that. Um, the minority of patients are really your diabetics, peripheral vascular disease people, cancer people, immunosuppressed people. Um, these can count for less than 5% of the patients. However, you need to know their press medical history and risk factors because these are the kind of patients that actually get bacteremic on you, that actually get the fevers, chills, high white count, and more serious infection, and the people that you would consider um, IV antibiotics and admission on, definitely. So, like I said before, a lot of the redness and the swelling is just from the inflammatory reaction to the infection. Um, 
and your workup's just going to be, you know, if they're febrile or a risky patient, like the risk factors I said in the other slide, then you can get blood cultures in labs. But most of these people are going to look pretty healthy and, um, you know, probably go home with some PO antibiotics. Um, do you put a line around the erythema? I always do. I always date and time it. Um, I appreciate it when other people, you know, have done it, and so the patient comes back for a second look or something like that. Um, and then there's, I read about this uh, elephantasis nostra, people who have recurrent attacks because they um, have impairment to lymph flow and they're predisposed to these attacks. And you can definitely see it's like lower leg edema, those kind of people um, definitely can get this. So um, who do you admit for IV antibiotics? Like I said before, uh-huh. Yeah. I'll just say that into the microphone since this is recorded. That uh, anybody who's had um, breast cancer, edema of the arms, can just have pain and a lot less redness. So give them the benefit of the doubt and um, prescribe yeah, antibiotics. Immune, immune suppressed people, yeah. So as per Dr. Gregville. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, so who do you admit for uh, IV antibiotics? The people who are at risk, look sick, symptoms of bacteremia, but also if the, if the cellulitis involves the face or neck, the hand as well, perineum, um, and also if, if a lower extremity, but probably upper extremity too with pre-existing edema. Um, we just see more people with the lower extremity edema, definitely. And who, what do you give them? You know, cefazolin, nafcillin. Um, you can even go as far as meropenem, um, depending on uh, who they are. But um, usually you just start out with a cephalosporin. Um, you don't need to jump right to vank unless, you know, you're, they have a history of MRSA or there's an abscess associated with it. Um, who do you see send home with DC, DC home with IV or uh, PO antibiotics? You know, basically everyone else. They look healthy. They are healthy. They can get follow-up in two to three days, or at least come back here in two to three days um, if they're not getting better. Um, and usually it's, you know, you can give them a Z-Pack. That's nice and easy. Um, but you can also give them 10 days of Doxy, Augmentin, other Macrolide or something like that. And um, Tintinale advocated that they need to at least continue the antibiotics three days after the infection seems no longer present, so after the redness has resolved to totally get all the infection gone away. Um, and then strict elevation of the extremity, try to keep down that edema. All right, here's more cellulitis, nothing that we see too often. Uh, there's a freshwater laceration, cellulitis, or seawater exposure, oysters, anything. What do you think would cause it on, on the right? Vibrio. How about the left? Not something we're going to see. But um, it's actually uh, Aramonas hydrophilia.
But here's, TAC has had this huge list of other forms of cellulitis and what the bugs could be. So usually when we're getting into a strange cellulitis, then we're just looking it up. But um, cellulitis and ultrasound, um, TAC has had this in his lecture, um, basically pointing out that around 50%, give or take, um, of abscesses under, under cellulitis can be found using ultrasound. So it, it kind of depends on your suspicion of uh, if there's an abscess underneath or not, or say like foreign body and stuff like that. Then you can definitely use uh, an ultrasound to look for it. And it's proven efficacious. What's this? Erysipelas. So actually seen more on the lower extremities than the face nowadays anyway. But uh, St. Anthony's fire, um, usually called by, caused by strep, uh, group A strep, but can be caused by other things as well, including staph. Um, it's a superficial cellulitis. It has lymph involvement. Um, usually there has been some kind of wound or trauma, um, but you still might not get that history out of somebody. Um, usually it's seen with people with venous insufficiency, uh, like in the legs. Um, obese people or toe web intrigo. Um, like I said, lower extremities are seen more often now than the face. And actually, it's uh, Harwood and I said it usually seen in babies and kids more than adults, too. So, something that I didn't know before um, getting this lecture going. Um, there is a prodromal phase before you actually see any lesion or rash. Uh, they can have a high fever, chills, feel sick. And then a couple of days later, they have a small area of erythema that spreads. Um, there's a burning sensation. It's like a big red, shiny plaque, kind of a little bit darker than cellulitis would be, or like the cellulitis we were talking about would be. There's well-demarcated borders. Um, they can have toxic striations and lymphadenopathy. And as it progresses, it can actually um, produce some bola and necrosis. Um, but then once you start antibiotics, they actually get, should get better pretty quickly, at least from their systemic symptoms. And after it's resolved, they can actually uh, desquamate the skin. So just tell them that that's going to happen because they might freak out. Their skin's peeling away. Um, elderly are at highest risk, so definitely admit those as well as little bitty kids. Um, Obviously, if they're immunocompromised, diabetics, you know, obviously. Um, and then kind of the same areas as would be, you would admit for um, aggressive cellulitis, the face, the neck, the orbit, um, hand, perineum, or extremities with preexisting edema. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, elevation and rest, regardless whether they're being emitted or sent home, saline wet dressings if they're ulcerated or necrosed, um, what antibiotics they get, penicillin for uh, regular patients, augmentin for diabetic patients, um, and then some others if they're penicillin allergic, like a erythromycin uh, or the macrolide. Um, if you're sending them home, get them followed up in two to three days, same as regular cellulitis. Um, and usually you don't have to cover for staph, usually it's a strep infection. Um, and but if it's recurrent, um, you have to get more education about uh, taking care of their general wound care at home and maybe getting them some per, uh, compressive stockings or a compression glove if it's upper, upper extremity edema. What is this? It's a nice juicy abscess. Seen a ton of those. 
So, so how do abscesses start, um, or how can they start? They can start as a simple folliculitis. Um, what do you do for that? Like the picture up at the top, basically. Just regular soap, keep it clean, warm soaks. You can put antibiotic ointment on it if you want. Basically outpatient treatment, pretty conservative. Um, but then if, it, then if it gets into a deeper in, uh, invasion, it turns into a furnicle, which is kind of like, I've seen a ton of those too, and I've kind of thought, eh, it's not really an abscess yet, so I wouldn't cut into it. Um, but it's basically the same kind of warm soaks, regular soap, things like that. But then if it keeps going, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. I don't see any problem in unroofing that center plane part, not in size deeply. Nothing about folliculitis that they don't get out. So pull hair out on folliculitis and unroof the furnicle. Obviously, if patient is okay with that. And then they can coalesce into a carbuncle, which is something like that. Usually it's areas of thick skin, neck, shoulders, but uh, more often it progresses in diabetics. And uh, this is, this, I mean, I would call this an abscess. I mean, I'm gonna definitely going to put a needle, uh, knife into this, like numb it up and uh, excise it. Um, so, uh, but basically once it gets into this stage, you're going to need to start looking at their vitals, the past medical history, um, blood sugar and diabetics, um, cause then it's getting into a more aggressive infection. So it's kind of, you know, are they getting sick from this or not? Um, and you can also look for, uh, lymphadenitis, um, and fever as part of a systemic infection. So you can kind of base your organism based on the body part mechanism of action. And I listed them here, but I won't go over them. But mostly it's staph, strep, obviously, some gram negatives, some anaerobes. So just, I mean, obviously if it's near the rectum, you're going to think more about polymicrobial and anaerobes and things like that. Or if it's a cat bite, pastorella, things like that. So. Um, again, you can use ultrasound to localize or to see how deep this um, uh, abscess goes. I've done that like on uh, things on the abdomen or around the uh, belly button. Like, is this gonna is this connected with the GI tract underneath? Things like that. Um, also, look for foreign bodies if you get kind of that history out of them, or if they're intramuscular too, because there's certain places that you really wouldn't want to go digging and um, cutting a knife through. Um, you might want to call some specialists for that. Um, obviously, treatment, incision, and drainage. Um, you can uh, aspirate um, if fluctuance is in question, or just to relieve some pressure too, or to see you know how big it is in there, uh, how much you think you're going to get out, um, and it also gives you a nice uh, specimen, undiluted specimen, um, to send for culture if you're going to do that. Um, and then gently correct all the loculated areas, provide a good anesthesia. This is the most horrible part about it. Um, usually that we, Dr. Jennison has advocated putting the bicarb in with the lidocaine. Um, if you're going into an infected area where it's very acidic, yes, Dr. Aguilar. Yeah, I've, I've thought about that many times just because, and I'll get to it later, like, 
whether we give them antibiotics to go home with or not, and that's basically people have advocated you don't have to give antibiotics if you do a good IND, but it is so hard sometimes to get a good IND out of these people and get all those loculations. And there's been, there's been several INDs that I've done, and afterward I'm thinking, God, that hurt so bad. I'm, you know, and, I, I, and then I'm going to put them on antibiotics because I'm not confident that I got everything just because it took too long and um, it was too painful. So I guess I didn't read anything about procedural sedation. They just prescribed local, but it's definitely something to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in sensitive areas too, like around the perineum, things like that, um, or definitely if it's a patient request, like that they've had these before, so. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. I've definitely almost hit that threshold. <laughs> I've, I've, I've put in like a Penrose drain into a foot before. I think Dr. Aguilar told me to do it in this foot. Yeah, just, I just kind of so, sewed it in, and then two, she came back two days later, and I took it out just because it was a risky area. But. And as far as packing, I mean, after you've curetted and irrigated a little bit, um, loose packing, not, I mean, I just put in, like, an inch or so, just enough to, like, get in there and then have something to pull out, you know. Um, I don't, definitely don't just pack it tightly because that's very, very painful. Um, and then you're just prescribing more narcotics. Um, and then replace in 48 hours. They can go to their clinic, come back here, 
and then you really don't need to pack it again unless it's you know still draining if it looks pretty dry you shouldn't have to pack it again um, and then warm after the packing's out warm soaks three to four times a day 15 minutes for a couple of days um, if it's around the you know air, uh, anal area sits baths things like that was there any more comments about INDs Uh, so, you know, if it's a stable, healthy patient who puts up with a good IND, like we've been talking about, um, several studies confirm that antibiotics really aren't indicated. Um, and neither is like a gram stain or culture for the most part, especially if it's their first one, it's not reoccurrent, they're otherwise healthy, you're not going to admit them. However, if they have signs of systemic infection, um, especially if you're going to be admitting, getting a culture anyway, um, it's a good idea. Plus or minus blood cultures kind of depends on your admitting service. Um, and then antibiotics, uh, you know, regardless of whether they had a good IND, if you're going to send them home, um, but they are, you know, immunosuppressed, on steroids, diabetic, that, that should be ETOH, Nick. So, um, uh, then they should get antibiotics. Or if they have, like, valve history, um, cyanotic heart disease, history of endocarditis would be an additional past medical history you would want to get. You would actually want to give antibiotics, and that, they said IV antibiotics, like 30 minutes prior to actually doing the IND, because they said that 30% of INDs actually seed the bloodstream. So, but that, just because you give them one dose of IV antibiotics doesn't mean that they have to be admitted, obviously. They're otherwise looking well and it's a simple um, abscess that you're IND and they could probably go home but still be put on PO antibiotics. Um, other reasons to put on antibiotics, systemic signs of infection. If there's cellulitis around it, the studies that I read about antibiotics or not with, with the abscesses said that if it's, you know, if the abscess is five centimeters or bigger, which is a huge abscess, or if it has a significant cellulitis surrounding it, which is a lot of the abscesses, at least that I've seen in the ER. Um, abscesses on the hands or face, risky areas, need antibiotics regardless. Um, obviously, if they're recurrent, um, might want to start some antibiotics. Um, and why don't even think about if it's MRSA, you know, if it's recurrent, doing a culture, and if it's proven MRSA, Hibiclin showers, uh, you know, mucoporosin in the nose and in the fingernails, that kind of thing, um, has been advocated both in Tentinalis and Harwood and Nuss. Um, and antibiotics were seven, five to seven days. However, a lot around here, you know, I back from 10 days is usually what I'm giving if I'm giving antibiotics. So um, just because of the MRSA component. Um, another uh, condition would be hydrotentitis superativa. Um, definitely, we've probably seen that in, during our burn rotation. Usually, it's in the groin or the axilla. That um, can be other places as well. And it's mostly the typical bugs that will ca that cause infection in these areas and cause abscess in these areas. Um, and what they are, just m multiple fornicles that, that lead to block sweat glands, and then they create fistulous tracts between each other. So that's how they kind of coalesce and, and uh, affect a large area. And usually the ED treatment is IND, you know, what you can, um, give them antibiotics, but basically they need a surgical referral. Um, most of these can be outpatient, but here if surgery definitely wants to see, if burn wants to see them in the ER, that's totally, um, you know, 
their prerogative um, because they need to be excised and have some skin grafting because if they're let alone, it can be uh, lead to uh, uh, squamous cell carcinoma and that can actually have distant metastasis and actually high mortality if it happens. Um, other abscesses, there's lots of other abscesses that I didn't touch on, but two that I, want, that I didn't think would be touched on in other areas um, of our lecture series would be um, just uh, infectious sebaceous cysts, um, things that get um, reinfected over and over again, need some referral because they probably have a little capsule in there that's holding infection and recurring, so they need an outpatient surgical referral for removal of that. Um, I've never, I've had one patient like this and it, the, the IND was just too painful that I, there was no opportunity for me to even find uh, if there was a capsule in there or remove it myself. So I just referred her and she got it taken out a couple of weeks later. And then pyelonidal cysts kind of, you know, in the butt crack, um, in the gluteal folds, uh, usually they're filled with hair and debris, they look pretty bad. Um, you can IND these, give them antibiotics, but they're going to need a referral as well because they need uh, a wide excision to get rid of it because it's definitely going to recur. And then the last thing that we're going to talk about is trichosis. Okay. <laughs> so, um, obviously, a fungal infection, you know, Rose gardeners, you know, typical question on the boards, but it can be really any barb of a plant um, or even a cat bite. Sometimes, sometimes vets, people who work in animal shelters can get this as well. Um, there's a pretty long incubation period compared to other things, up to three weeks. Um, it's, they're all kind of pretty painless, so they can fly under the radar, and maybe that's the reason that we really don't see it until a little bit later. Um, but they can have an ulceration, a shankar, crested ulcer, uh, subcule nodules and pustules, and then they can have kind of some lymphangitis with some skip areas. Um, I've never seen that myself. Um, and usually uh, one thing that we want to think about is if they're having symptoms of uh, extracutaneous illness, particularly in the skeletal system like carpal tunnel, um, if it's on the arm, or a tenosynovitis, arthritis, or osteo um, are comp major complications of sporotrichosis. And Obviously, it's a difficult diagnosis. You definitely have to probe the history and things like that. Um, you can get a culture and direct microscope to figure it out, but that's not something we're going to do in the ER. Basically, if we think about it and it's on our differential um, and we ruled out everything else, uh, having it, some, giving them some intraconazole and some follow-up would probably be necessary, but they're going to need that intraconazole for six months if it's really proven. And that is it. Any questions?